Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Is faith blind? On the last episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast, I focused on the question, is faith irrational? And according to many contemporary secularists, the answer is, of course, since to them, faith is defined as the suspension of critical thinking or believing in something without evidence. But as I began to look more closely into this issue, I discovered that both of these definitions are relatively new. Though many people in our day use the word faith in this way, including the majority of the Christians I interviewed, we need to understand that the biblical view of faith is something different entirely. According to the Bible, faith isn't believing in something without evidence. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Now, as I mentioned, on this program, we'll be dealing with a question as to whether faith is blind. And the reason this is an important question to bring up is that many people today believe that the Bible actually supports this view. And to get us started down this path, I'd like you to listen to the following interviews that I recorded at a variety of Christian gatherings. So I'm doing a podcast, and my question I'm asking is, what is faith? How would you define it? Good question. I would say faith is um, like the wind blowing. You don't see it, but it's absolutely there. So I would say faith is of the unseen. Faith is believing without seeing. The belief in the unknown, and it's a decision you make. What is faith in your perspective? That's a great question. I would say it is accepting an alternate reality as more true than the one you're currently living in and believing there's something more than just yourself and what you can see and taste and touch. So it's more than just the senses? Yeah. So is it a way of knowing through a different means? And what does that mean? Yes, it's an alternative way of being, which encompasses knowing. Faith is something I don't know if you can really describe it in any manner. I think you just feel his love and you just kind of have to take that step on the water and let him guide you. The sense of something inside of you that is just so strong and powerful. But again, I don't think there's any true words to describe faith. Uh, leap of faith? <laughs> so it's just a blind leap? Oh, Faith is what you cannot see, yeah. and you still believe. I 
think that that's what faith is, believing in something that you don't know is for sure. Faith is just basically stepping out on something you can't see. I think when you boil it all down, you're going to have to come to this point where it's like, okay, you know, faith is believing in things unseen. Like there may be things that point us in that direction, but at some point you're going to have to have some type of belief that, okay, even though I can't see God, I can't see Jesus, that I believe in him. The Bible tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so I think the Bible proves itself because it's the infallible word of God. It's the truth. Faith is believing in something that you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Um, It's just uh, something internal that is of the supernatural and can't really be explained. The scripture says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so we live in a world where we have to see everything. And if we see it, we can believe it. If we see it, we can aim towards it. But faith says no, because the one you hope in, which is Jesus, says that all things work together for your good, then it's going to happen for you. I kind of live my life just off of faith and trust in God and have faith that whatever happens to me is what he has planned for me. Would you call it a blind trust? I guess. Okay. Yeah. One thing that just about all those clips seem to have in common was this idea that faith is believing something that you can't see. But is this really the case? Is this the way that faith is presented in the Bible? Now, one passage that I think is worth considering right at the outset of our investigation is found in Acts 17. After Paul and Silas arrive at a synagogue in Berea, Luke specifically notes that the believers in that community were more noble than those of other regions, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, Luke is saying that the Bereans didn't blindly believe any of the claims that Paul had been making. Instead, he actually praised the Bereans for carefully checking to see whether the things he was saying about Jesus really had been written well in advance throughout the Hebrew Bible. So this is the approach I'd like us to take as we consider this idea that faith is believing something you can't see. Let's roll up our sleeves together and examine the scriptures to see whether or not this idea is justified. What kinds of things, for example, would we find if we were to investigate just a single book of the Bible, such as the Gospel of John? Well, chapter 2 of John's Gospel records the event in which Jesus turned water into wine, and according to verse 11, this was the first of his signs that Jesus performed in Cana, and the result was that, quote, his disciples believed. In short, this text is clearly spelling out that the disciples came to believe in Jesus' messianic identity after they saw him perform this particular miracle. Then in John 5.36, Jesus says, quote, The works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Again, here we find another passage which seems to be making clear that first people see Jesus perform a miraculous work, and then they realize that this isn't something that ordinary men are able to do. This is why in John 7.31, we're told that many people in Jerusalem believed in Jesus since they were saying, quote, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? 
John chapter 11 records that many people began to believe in Jesus after they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Later in verse 48 of that same chapter, we're told that as a result of this miracle, the Jerusalem authorities called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and said, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. In the upper room discourse recorded in John 14, Jesus told his disciples, quote, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, Jesus seems to be saying here, don't just take my word for it. Use your eyes. Take a look at the things I'm doing. In chapter 19, John records his own eyewitness testimony relating to Christ's crucifixion and death. And as he notes, some of the things that occurred that day seem to correspond with a variety of Old Testament prophecies. So as a result, John says in verse 35, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. You see, John isn't asking his readers to blindly believe anything. Rather, he's saying that we should believe this particular story because he happens to be telling the truth about what really happened because he saw it with his own eyes. In fact, his entire gospel reads like a kind of written deposition containing all the first-hand accounts about the events in the life of Jesus and his three-year ministry as reported by all the key witnesses. The first few verses of John 20 records the scene in which both Peter and John run to Jesus' tomb only to find it empty. And according to verse 8, when John entered the empty tomb, quote, he saw and believed, end quote. Once again, the kind of faith that is being outlined for us in this passage is a faith founded on observable facts. First, John sees with his own eyes that the tomb is empty, and then he believes. Later on in that chapter, John relates the story of doubting Thomas, who completely refused to believe in Jesus, saying, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, if faith is believing something that you can't see, as we kept hearing in the street interviews that I recorded, then how are we to explain the faith of Thomas? Since he refused to believe unless he saw the risen Jesus with his own eyes, what are we to think in his case? Jesus did end up revealing himself to this unbelieving disciple. The result of this, of course, was that Thomas did believe, and he did so not in spite of, but on the basis of his senses. John ends up using the same sort of language in the opening lines of his first epistle. He says, quote, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. One of the things I love about John's description here is that he takes the time to point out not only that he has seen Jesus, but that he saw him with his own physical eyeballs and touched him with his hands. In other words, this was not some kind of dream, vision, or mystical experience of any kind. No, this is the kind of eyewitness testimony that would stand up in any modern law court. As we discussed on the last episode, eyewitness testimony happens to be its own kind of evidence. In his 1725 logic book, Isaac Watts referred to this as the evidence of faith. The more witnesses you have and the more credible the testimony, the stronger faith becomes. Order in the court. How are members of any given jury able to determine whether a defendant is innocent or guilty? Well, they're instructed not only to listen to the claims of the various witnesses, but also to evaluate the credibility of their claims. And if there happen to be competing claims, they need to ask which one best accounts for all the available evidence. Now, one of the problems with the English word faith is that over the past two centuries, it's taken on a kind of religious connotation. 
But the biblical writers didn't choose to use the Greek word for faith because it conveyed a particular religious sensibility, which some people have and some people do not. No, they simply chose to use the ordinary word, trust. Though trust certainly can be applied to religious questions, it's also something that no human being can live without on any given day. Can I trust the chair I'm sitting in? Can I trust that the food I'm about to eat hasn't been poisoned? Can I trust this particular babysitter or financial advisor? None of these are religious questions, but sometimes the way Christians speak of faith makes it sound like it's some kind of spiritual sixth sense. But if faith is some form of extrasensory perception, it would appear as complete nonsense to those without that sensibility, making it impossible to reason with them about it. But what do we find Jesus' followers doing throughout the pages of the New Testament? Again and again, we find them proclaiming that which they have seen with their eyes, heard with their ears, and touched with their hands. We see them reasoning with people both in the marketplace and in the synagogue, trying to persuade them that Jesus really is the long-awaited Messiah. On the other hand, if spiritual things are discerned through a kind of spiritual sixth sense, then who's really to say which spiritual view is actually the correct one? Perhaps, some may suggest, Hindus are really the ones who are the most spiritually tuned in. With that in mind, I'd like you to listen to this conversation I recently had with a professing Christian. There are a lot of different holy books. Book of Mormon, Quran, the Bible. Why do you think this is the right book? Um, I think the spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so for me, it's as I've walked through different hills and valleys of life, uh, particularly painful seasons where I've seen scripture come to life for me and for my family and for folks in my faith community. And so I've heard, I've looked at different passages of the Quran that actually mirror or are similar to some things that you'll find in scripture and there's some different principles of Islam and of Hindu that I've actually found to be somewhat edifying in my spiritual journey. Uh, I, I do a lot of work on a college campus in equity and inclusion and have tried to do things from a bit more of an ecumenical and interfaith lens and so um, I don't spend a lot of time going tit for tat on my book is better than yours personally. While it's true, of course, that there is some overlap between the teachings of the Bible and the Quran, both, for example, end up promoting some form of monotheism. But one thing that's distinctive about the biblical narrative is its emphasis on what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 as the thing of first importance, namely the gospel. This word gospel simply means good news. It's the report about something that has happened, an event that has transpired in real time and space history. Now, the particular event that Paul outlines for us in 1 Corinthians 15 is centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as seen by over 500 eyewitnesses and as foreseen by the Hebrew prophets. There is nothing at all like this claim in other religions and worldviews. And if this particular set of facts never actually took place, Paul says in that chapter that our faith would be meaningless. So believing that Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day isn't some kind of esoteric idea intended only for spiritually sensitive people, but rather it's the appropriate response that everyone should have if they attend closely to the facts of this particular case. If the resurrection really occurred, everyone should believe it. And if it didn't occur, no one should believe it. 
Now, as you heard, some of the people I interviewed ended up citing a passage from Hebrews 11.1, which says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Because this particular passage came up so frequently, on a few occasions, I decided to ask some of the respondents what they thought it meant. Listen to this clip. Faith is the thing that is hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Yes. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. I stand on that. So what do you think that means? Is it saying not seen, is it blind? It's not blind. It's just that we we don't have the ability to see it. What do you think faith is? Uh, it's the substance of things not seen, but hoped for. So what do you think that means? Is it is it saying it's not seen, it's a blind leap? Yeah, I think it's a blind leap. I think it's more so about, I have faith, but I associate myself more with hope. Because without hope, you can't have faith. You have to hope in your faith. That's what activates your faith. Now, on this particular program, I'm asking whether faith by definition is blind. And according to many of the people I talked with, this passage from Hebrews 11.1 seems to lend support to this idea of blind faith. But is this really the case? First of all, if this passage really does teach that faith is blind, then how are we to make sense of all the passages we've already looked at in which faith came as a direct result of someone like Thomas seeing something extraordinary? Furthermore, What are we to do with the words of Jesus himself? In Matthew 15, Jesus was told that some of the Pharisees were offended by his teaching, but he simply responded by saying this, Let them alone. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, he said, both will fall into a pit. Jesus' warning seems to be relatively straightforward. Blind adherence to those in authority should be avoided at all costs, since the results can be quite dangerous. Therefore, all of us should carefully examine the claims made by those who seek to lead us, religious or otherwise. Now, it should be pointed out that Jesus wasn't introducing a new concept here. In fact, Proverbs 14:15 says, quote, The simple man believes everything, but the wise man gives thought to his steps. And in Romans 16:18, Paul was critical of those who, by smooth talk and flattery, deceive the hearts of the naive. So then, in light of all this, how are we to interpret the words of Hebrews 11:1? First, we should recognize that this verse has been translated in a variety of different ways. According to the ESV, this verse says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in the most recent edition of the New American Standard Bible, Hebrews 11.1 is translated this way, Faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. But most of the people who brought up this passage in my interviews seem to be recalling the language of the King James Version, which says, quote, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the first question we need to investigate is which of these translations best represents the Greek original. In the last episode, I mentioned that the Greek word for faith is pistis, 
And that's the word we find here at the beginning of this verse. The next important word, which the King James translated substance, is the Greek word hypostasis. Here's how one Greek lexicon defines it. The essential or basic nature of an entity, essence, actual being, reality. This same lexicon went on to say that translating hypostasis in Hebrews 11.1 in the sense of confidence or assurance, which was favored by Melanchthon, Luther, and Tyndale, has enjoyed much favor but must be eliminated since examples of it cannot be found. End quote. Instead, this lexicon preferred to translate hypostasis in Hebrews 11.1 as a guarantee of ownership or a title deed. Another Greek lexicon I consulted came to a nearly identical conclusion. Quote, in the ancient world, all owners of buildings and land were required to have deeds on record establishing their property rights. Thus, a hypostasis was a collection of documentary evidence establishing ownership deposited in the archives and proving the owner's rights. Hence, it is a guarantee for the future. End quote. Now, the second half of Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is also the conviction or evidence of things not seen. And the Greek word being used here is elenkos. Josephus used this word when at one point he encouraged his readers to consider the weight of the evidence that he had presented. This, I believe, is a good way to understand the way that elenkos is being used here in this verse from Hebrews 11. In short, faith is the title deed of things hoped for. It's documentary evidence of things not seen. So now, if we look at the broader context of Hebrews 11, what specifically is the thing that is hoped for? Well, in verse 8, we're told that Abraham was looking forward to his inheritance. Then verse 10 says he was looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God. And in verse 16, all the patriarchs are described as those who desired a better country, namely a heavenly one. Therefore, when verse 1 says that faith is the title deed of things hoped for, the thing that's being addressed is the believer's ultimate inheritance. This is the thing that's not seen, and the reason it can't be seen with our eyes is because it's still yet future. In other words, this verse doesn't have anything to do with invisible spiritual realities or any kind of blind leap. No, Hebrews 11.1 1 is simply saying that if you have faith in Jesus, you are currently in possession of the title deed to something that you can't see just yet, namely, heaven. So now, let's take a moment to consider what Hebrews 11.1 1 is and is not saying. This verse is not saying that faith is always blind, because at the end of the day, this verse isn't actually defining the nature of faith itself. Instead, this passage is simply outlining one of the key aspects of faith, namely, that if you believe in Jesus, that's what the book of Hebrews taken as a whole happens to be all about, then you can be confident that you'll go to heaven. You don't need to add penance, good works, or anything for that matter, since faith itself is the title deed of your heavenly reward. This passage, then, is not focusing on unseen spiritual realities that need to be discerned by means of some additional spiritual sixth sense. No, this passage is simply teaching that we're saved by faith alone. When people begin to think that Hebrews 11.1 1 is defining the nature of faith rather than the specific nature of the Christian hope about the afterlife— I believe this creates a great deal of confusion and contributes to the increasing acceptance of blind faith even in Christian circles. 
Therefore, to combat this misunderstanding, I believe it's important to walk through all the biblical passages we've already considered on this episode, which make clear that throughout the New Testament, people respond in faith after they see Jesus doing extraordinary things. And if this is really the case, then faith by nature simply can't be blind. Now, I'd like us to take an additional look at the story of Thomas as recorded in John chapter 20. After Thomas famously doubts the testimony of the other disciples, Jesus appears to all the disciples some eight days later and says to Thomas, quote, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Once again, Thomas is encouraged to believe after he has seen and touched Jesus with his own eyes and hands. Then when Thomas famously says, My Lord and my God, Jesus responds by saying, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Thomas put his trust in Jesus because of what he had witnessed firsthand, but Jesus seemed to indicate in this passage that his willingness to appear to Thomas wasn't something he was going to do for everyone. In fact, in John 15, 27, he told the disciples that those who had been with him from the beginning would end up testifying about him. Peter himself seems to allude to this in a message he gave in the city of Caesarea, recorded in Acts chapter 10. Quote, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses. So now, in light of this, there is a sense in which we could say that because you and I have not been given the opportunity, like Thomas, to see, hear, or touch Jesus directly, that we are putting our trust in something that we do not see. In fact, this is why Paul says in Romans 10:17 that faith comes by hearing. But in affirming this, along with the idea that we walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5:7, is in no way to suggest that faith is somehow opposed to evidence. No. The eyewitness testimony provided by the apostles is itself compelling evidence in its own right. And I'll be discussing reasons for the compelling nature of this testimony on future episodes. As we discussed on the last program, the testimony of other reliable witnesses happens to be a large part of our knowledge. In fact, along these lines, Max Planck, the famous physicist known for the role he played in originating quantum theory, wrote a book in 1933 titled, Where is Science Going? And in that book, he took some time to highlight the general trustworthiness of oral and written information in scientific reports. This is scientific information that all of us receive not by our direct experience or observation, but indirectly through the observation and reports of others. To reject this kind of information, Planck argues, would end up destroying science, since if one could never trust the reports of other scientists, then each of us would be limited to our own direct experiences alone, and no comprehensive knowledge of the world could ever be established. According to Max Planck, therefore, trusting the testimony of other observers is merely to follow the call of common sense. Now, before I wrap up, I'd like to call your attention to the concluding lines of John chapter 20. In verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Though sometimes these words are used as a kind of proof text for blind faith, the very next verse makes clear that Jesus is not encouraging his followers to blindly believe things through some kind of spiritual intuition. For immediately after this, John adds the following narration. Quote, 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In these words, John has given us a kind of purpose statement for his entire gospel. As he states, his goal is that all his readers would come to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel. Therefore, if you think about it, the substance of John's entire narrative, with all the evidence he presents, which rests primarily on eyewitness testimony, was written in order to instill faith. Therefore, it seems clear, as far as Christianity is concerned, that faith comes not in spite of, but as the result of, a careful examination of the facts. Well, I love the opportunity to highlight some of the encouraging answers that I receive when I record my street interviews, and this one happens to be one of my favorites. I'm like doing a podcast and I'm asking what people think faith is. How would you define it? Oh, okay. Um, I would say faith is not a blind leap. I would say uh, our culture kind of defines it that way. But I would say, like, for Christianity, that we have a lot of evidence for what we believe. So I would say, like, if you look at the evidence for Christianity, like, if you compare it to everything else, it just, like, comes out as... It just seems like it's true. So to me, it doesn't seem like... um, like a blind faith kind of thing, but rather, like, there's good evidence, and so that's why I would say I believe. I don't know. Okay, so I converted to Christianity because of that, but I don't hear anybody saying that. And I'm wondering, is this a lost emphasis, the idea that it's proven, like, there's a resurrection-fulfilled prophecy? Everybody goes subjective today. I feel it, I just know it, it's in my heart. What do you think? Maybe you should answer. I was an atheist, and I came to faith two years ago because of the study of like all the different evidences for the faith and it blew my mind that there were actually evidences that there were like clues for God proofs uh, so I think that people should be more aware Christians Christians themselves like in churches they should be more aware of all the, the proofs we have I think you're right it's not something that you hear a lot yeah. and I think a lot of people are like born into the church or like Christian parents yeah. or whatever so they just kind of maybe have never asked the questions yeah. before but yeah. then when we're talking to unbelievers it's important so. it's so important yeah. because the unbelievers they have good questions and we have more people in our circles of influence that are not Christian so why do you believe what you believe compared to everybody else's view and you gotta have an answer yeah. Peter says so be always ready to give an answer right yeah Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Humble Skeptic. And for more information about this program, simply head to HumbleSkeptic.com, where we've got all kinds of interesting articles for you to read, along with additional episodes for you to listen to. Folks, The Humble Skeptic is a listener-supported podcast, and I'm very thankful to those of you who have subscribed to the show via Substack or who have put something in the tip jar. 
If you're so inclined, you can find the appropriate links in the show notes for both those options. I can also use your help promoting the show, so please share episodes with friends and family. And if you haven't already, consider leaving a positive review via the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll see you next time on the Humble Skeptic Podcast as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives.